Are you a current or future physician assistant wanting to learn more about finances? Then join me on this journey to become a PA the FI way. Hi, my name is Kat and I'm a practicing certified physician assistant who will be your host. It took me five years after I started practicing medicine as a PA to thoroughly dive into my personal finances after I discovered the concept of financial independence. I want to use what I have learned to help you avoid some of the financial mistakes that I have made while sharing some of the financial wins that I have had along the way. Join me as we discuss financial strategies to guide you to becoming a physician assistant on the way to financial independence. Welcome back, everyone, to the PA the FIOA podcast. I'm your host, Kat, and I'm really excited for today's episode because we have a really special guest. We have another PA named Tracy on the show. So welcome to the show, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to dive in. Yeah. For the listeners who aren't quite familiar with your work, do you mind sharing a little bit more about yourself? I'm really excited because you also host a podcast. So do you mind sharing a little bit about that and a little bit more information for the listeners? Absolutely. So I'm Tracy Bingaman. I describe myself as a multi-passionate woman who loves to teach working moms about finances and freedom. So I help busy moms to create systems and strategies to help manage their three most limited resources, and that is time, money, and energy. I think these are the three things that as moms, we just don't ever seem to have enough of. I am a PA. I walked through a season where I got super burned out, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And that led me to wanting to help other moms to have more margin in their life so that they don't end up as burned out as I was. Sure. Yes. Burnout is such a struggle that I've been through as well. So I'm really excited that you're willing to share some of that information with the listeners. Before we talk a little bit more about that, do you mind sharing first what type of PA you are, what specialty you work in right now? So I have been a surgery PA for the last 10 years. Currently, I work in plastic surgery with a lot of aesthetics um, that I'm doing now. I work for a small private practice, which is a much different animal than a big uh, health network. I have done both. I spend the majority of my days at work taking care of pre and post-op patients in our office. I'll troubleshoot post-operative complications. And the majority of what I do is aesthetic procedures like neuromodulators like Botox, uh, non-surgical facelifts with threads, and injecting fillers is the lion's share of what I do every day. Nice. So what do you feel like you enjoy most about both working in surgery as well as the subset of the plastics part as well as the aesthetics part? So when I was in PA school, I thought I wanted to do family medicine until I did a family medicine rotation. (laughs) And then I realized they have to know everything about everything, which as a student was very overwhelming to me. And I just... I liked the OR. So when I went on my surgery rotation, I was like, this is it. I don't want to be in a family practice office. But what I loved about family practice is the provider knew their patient over time. They knew them when they were well and therefore a routine physical. They knew them when they were sick and they got to see them progress through life. And that was very attractive to me as a provider because I felt there was this good even energy exchange. The provider knew the patient. The patient knew the provider. They liked each other. They had this relationship over time. 
Then I did general surgery and we only operated on people who were sick or needed surgery. We saw them in consultation. You know, we saw them for surgery. We saw them postoperatively. And then we sent them back to their primary care provider to continue the rest of their care. They only saw us if they were having a problem. So now when I'm doing someone's Botox, I see them every three to six months and I get to foster relationships with them. People come in before big life events, like I'm the mother of the bride or my baby's having a baby and we're having a baby shower. And it's all of these fun and exciting things and people are happy to come in, which in medicine is such a rarity because there is a lot of really heavy stuff. And I did the heavy and I did the cancer. I did general surgery for a while and then I did robotic urology. Wow which was great. I loved it. I loved the content of what I was doing, but I also had a hard time taking care of patients who were sick with cancer and coming home filled up and ready to take care of my own family. It was very heavy and and draining for me personally to be in that specialty. Yeah, I can really imagine that. That's funny that you say that about family medicine because when I was in PA school, I was like, I don't think I could work in family medicine and I really enjoyed the OR as well. But then I started in family medicine and was there for six and a half years. And yes, it was challenging to know not everything about everything, but a decent amount of a lot. And I have recently been in outpatient psychiatry and I've enjoyed the the specializing and kind of focusing down a little bit. So, but that's fun that you are able to find a specialty that you feel like works better at this phase of your life. Yeah. And that's the great thing about being a PA is, is with every season of my life as We have five kids. So as we had more and more kids and they got young, every time we had another one, oh my gosh, there's so many of them. (laughs) How are we going to do this? And so with each of those phases, I was able to transition either from one job to another within a specialty or to a different specialty. And in doing that, I've been able to find some sort of a fit during these different seasons of life, which has really served me well. Yeah, that's awesome for sure. And then you did touch a little bit on your burnout. Do you mind sharing what you feel led up to your burnout developing back then? And then when you were in that place of burnout, how did it feel? My burnout was born out of what felt at the time like the perfect storm of bad conditions. So in medicine, we love triads. That's a cool thing. We love to say like this triad, this and this. So if I had to define the triad of things that led up to my burnout, I would say that it was increased demands with lack of support from my employer. The health system I worked at kept buying more hospitals. And every time they did, the CEO would send an email, don't worry, we can afford this. And I was so not worried about that. I was worried about who was going to cover that hospital because I was already covering two and then it was three and then it was pager call for three and rounding at three. And it was just a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more and not enough teammates to kind of spread the work out. So that was the one. Two was that I had very unhealthy read non-existent boundaries and this underlying tendency to be a people pleaser and wanting to achieve and be praised for my contribution to the team and being seen as this hard worker who doesn't want special accommodations just because she has all these kids who can do it as well as the guys who can put in as much time as my surgeons, which is unreasonable because they're not paying me what they're paying those surgeons. Sure. So that is for sure. Yep. <laughs> and then the third thing was really 
this level of stress in my life that led to some pretty significant health challenges that presented themselves. And really, that was the thing that made me say, whoa, I can't keep going like this. I was diagnosed with antibody negative Graves disease, and Mm. I was severely hyperthyroid to the point where I got, I was, I got pneumonia. And then once I recovered from my pneumonia, I went back to work and I was operating and I just couldn't catch my breath. And our case was not exciting. It was a routine thing that I was doing at the time. And I just couldn't take a deep breath. And I finally, at the end of the case, said to my surgeon, would you mind closing? I'm really not feeling well. And he was like, this is weird. It's been years and you've never once asked me to close. So I went to the PACU and I walked in and I said to my favorite nurse, I don't know what's wrong with me, but something is not right. I need you to put me on the monitor. She pulled the curtain. She put me in the bed in the PACU. She put me on the monitor and I was sinus tacking at 180 beats per minute at rest. Wow. So my heart was just racing and racing and I couldn't catch my breath. And, you know, as a PA, I was like, okay, I'm septic from my pneumonia that didn't get better. I have a PE because I went home and rested in bed because they told me I had pneumonia and I was supposed to take it easy. I have some sort of AV nodal reentry and I have, you know, I, I'm going through this list of differentials yeah. and I'm like, this is what I think it could be. And my nurse is like, you need to go to the ER and let someone else diagnose you. <laughs> Thank goodness for that nurse, here, right? <laughs> not the provider. You know, so I walk to the ER and I say to my docs in the doc box, I'm having a PE. (laughs) And they're like, I'm sorry, what? And I'm like, they're like, it's not like you have a PE, like you have a heart attack. I'm like, listen, I'm having a PE. I prove me wrong, right? Like, so, so they put me in a room and my care team was amazing. And even still, I'm in this bed. I'm texting my PA school, like my friends from PA school who are now like critical care PAs or ERPAs. And I'm like, this is a story. What are we not thinking of? Because they spun me for a PE. It was negative. A little bit of residual pneumonia, not enough to explain my tachycardia. And my one girlfriend said, they need to check your thyroid. Like if no one's checked your thyroid, which when you're the patient, you're like, I don't know. It's me. I can't think of anything. I don't, I'm not sure what we're supposed to do. Sure. So we did that, and my TSH was zero. Wow. (laughs) And my T3 and T4 were like triple, quadruple, normal. Um, And if I hadn't asked that, I would have bounced back because I wasn't going to be better because they were going to change my antibiotics for my pneumonia. So a little note to whoever's listening that if you feel like something's wrong, something might be wrong. (laughs) You need to keep asking questions and pushing for your diagnosis. So for me, it was those three things. More work not good boundaries and saying yes to things I shouldn't have said yes. And this screeching halt realization that my body was just not going to put up with being put through what I was asking it to do because of what my work was asking me to do. Yeah. So yeah, no kidding. I love that you touched on boundaries a little bit there. So I'm reading Jenna Kutcher's book, How Are You Really? And I really love her podcast. If you haven't checked it out, it's amazing. And she's also up in Minnesota, northern Minnesota from here, too. So that's really fun. But she talks about boundaries. And I was listening to another podcast where she was a guest on there recently. And she talks about how boundaries don't keep things or others out of your life. They keep you in your life. And I absolutely love that quote. So do you mind touching a little bit more on boundaries, Tracy? When I was the most burned out, I was checking my email. We would send a sign-out email at 5 p.m. 
And then all of the really well-intentioned surgeons that I worked with, which there were 14 of them, would reply all to everyone when they had an update. And they meant it in a good way. They wanted everyone to be in the loop. If they had thoughts on a person, they wanted them in the loop. But what it led to for me was those were my patients. I was inpatient rounding on these patients. I knew Mr. Smith. I knew his wife. I knew, you know, I was very invested in these patients. So I would get these notifications on my phone. Ding. 6.30 p.m. Ding. 7 p.m. Ding. 9 p.m. Ding. One in the morning. (laughs) They're up all night operating. And I would be, I had my notifications on. I had my work email on my personal phone. I had no boundaries Mm -hmm. between me at work and me at home. And when I was at home, I was thinking about work. And then when I was at work, I was thinking about how I hadn't been present at home with my kids because I was thinking about work when I was at home. It was just, there was no separation. And now I check my work email like twice a week. If you need me, please call me. Like (laughs) I'm just not, it's, it's a different setting. So we're not using email to talk about acute patients in that way. But before I left, I deleted my work email off my phone. And sometimes the surgeons would call me at 7 a.m. as I was driving to the hospital, like, didn't you see my email from 2 a.m.? And I would say, no, I'm not there. (laughs) I'm going to be there in 10 minutes. And at that point, I will read the 16 emails that came reply all, and I will see what information applies to me and I will start my day. But you don't own my night, right? So I'm getting paid to work salaried. I'm working way more hours than you're paying me for anyway. I'm not going to let this, I'm not going to bring it home with me. And I got so burned out that I quit (laughs) like in a blaze of glory, which I wouldn't recommend. But the reason that that happened is because I waited too long and I didn't build boundaries early enough and I didn't protect my peace and I didn't protect my relationships and I didn't protect my mental health or my physical health. And then it was too late. I was like, oh, this is this ship is sinking. Yeah. And I had, oh, this system, we're going to try this thing. We're going to try to fix it. My husband eventually was like, listen, you got to save yourself, right? You can't save that ship. That's someone else's job. Your job is not to save everyone around you. Yeah. And in healthcare, we have this culture that is, does not say that. So I had been very vocal about how I was unhappy. I felt like we weren't being safe. Our providers were exhausted. We were overnight call. We weren't sleeping. It wasn't healthy. It wasn't safe for patients. And then I tried to build boundaries. I tried to go part-time. I tried to get some assistance and they just said, no, no, no. And eventually I said, okay, this is, are you sure I can't work part-time? And they said, no, that won't work for us. And I said, I can't work for you either if this is the way it's going to continue to be. And several of my team members of the team I was leaving where things were really bad said, I can't believe you're leaving us in this situation and we're going to be even worse off because you're going. Oh, man. That's, and I'm like, that's not supportive. Dude, I love you, but you're on. You're an adult. Like you're making your own choices. <sighs> I'm not responsible for you building boundaries. I'm not responsible for you not being burned out. I have to be selfish, and I say selfish in quotes, because at that point, I had a choice. I had to either choose that that job was more important than my health and sanity, or I had to choose me and my family and my marriage and my relationship with my kids. And it was still really hard. 
It's been two years. And even still, when I talk about it, I'm like, I'm sweating. I'm thinking about how stressful it was. It just felt like things were completely out of control. And I didn't have, I didn't have any autonomy in my decision making for me. I didn't have any agency in determining the outcome of what was going to happen. And the only way I could take back control of my life was to step completely out of that situation, which was me resigning. Well, that was an amazing story. I'm sorry that you went through all of that, but thank you so much for sharing that with the listeners because I think that there were so many pieces of information in there that were so incredibly valuable. And one of them, as we touched on, was boundaries. But also number two is that life is just simply too short. If you're in a place, if you are in a job where it's not fulfilling, if you aren't feeling like that you can continue to contribute to something that you are aligned with and like you said, that is not being protective of your mental capacity, your bandwidth, your mental health, your precious time with your family. Sometimes you need to take action and figure out what the next step is for your life. So I really commend you for doing that and recognizing that. And even when it was challenging, when people were almost guilting you to try to stay. Yeah, it was definitely one of the harder things that I've done. And I, it turned out in the end, to be a blessing. Because I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, like, having a testimony is great, getting one is a huge pain in the butt. Like, sure, that's great. Like, like, walking through the hard season, no one in that is like, oh, this is going to be such a great story to inspire others someday, because you're drowning. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're just like, I'm drowning. I can't think about other people. I just, I had to preserve myself in that situation. But it has given me a platform and inspired me to go on to share with others, which has been a blessing to me and to other people. Yeah, that's awesome. So you touched on this a little bit already, but were there any more steps that you were able to take to fight the burnout back then? And how were you able to take those steps? So once I realized that it wasn't going to work out, I was able to really put some space between me and feeling so emotionally invested in the outcome of the team. And I think looking back, if I had done that sooner, if I hadn't been so deeply emotionally invested in that job, I would have had some more separation between me as a person and the job that I was working at. It was like, I was the job. The job was me. There was nothing in between us. And so when the job wasn't going well, I felt like it was drowning me. If I could go back, I would say, this is simply a job. You're going to do your best to take care of patients. You're going to do your best to take care of yourself. But you can't single-handedly change a massive network with 10 hospitals if you're the only one who thinks there's a problem. Like just saying, hey, there is a limit to what you can do. And some of this went from oh, we need to rally all the advanced practitioners in this entire network to solve this problem to, I can't save everyone. I have to kind of know my limits in that way. Yeah, certainly. And then at the time when you did quit your job, it sounds like that you were able to live only on your husband's salary for a period of time while you were trying to figure out the next phase of your career. Do you mind sharing how that went and how you guys were able to do that financially? Yeah. So this was a progression of my husband seeing how unhappy I was, how sick the job was making me, and us in conversation of, okay, I'm going to propose that I'm going to go to part-time 
what does that look like for our budget? And originally, my husband's name is Dan. He was like, all he could see was how much my annual income was going to be reduced. That was the only, he's like, ooh, that's a not zero number (laughs) there that we're looking at, you know? And I was like, no, obviously it's not zero. Like they're not going to pay me what they're paying me full time to work part time. But here's what we would gain. I'd be able to go to the grocery store instead of using Instacart. I would be able to pick the kids up before and after school two days a week. This is how my life would improve. This is how our family's life would improve. These are small ways that it would save us money. But the big thing was it was going to be better for me, mm-hmm. right, if we had gone part-time. And so that was like phase one. <laughs> and then phase two was like, oh, it's getting really hot in here. Like I'm – they're not saying yes to part-time. I definitely can't sustain this. I can't keep working – in this situation full time. And so then I started to say to him, like, I think I have to resign. And if I resigned, this is what our budget would look like for the next six months. Could we do it for a year? Could we do it for 18 months? Because I felt pretty employable, but I had never once in my entire career quit with no plan and no other job that I was leaving for. So I was like, this kind of feels like jumping off a cliff. How can we make it feel like it's not so scary. And the way that we did that was lots of conversation, lots of transparency where I am the nerd. I am the budget maker. I love Love a good spreadsheet. Um, (laughs) My husband is like nerdy, but more of a free spirit. So I was like, this is what it looks like. And he takes a lot longer to get on board with decisions. Like I could today be like, I'm going to quit, run the numbers. I feel good about it. He's like, I'm sorry, what now? Like what? So it was like, okay, we're going to warm him up to this. We're going to talk about the part-time thing. That didn't work out. I think I have to quit. If I do have to quit, we're okay. And I said, we're okay for six months. We're okay for a year. We're okay for 18 months. Like I would have pulled the kids out of daycare if I really wasn't able to find something. But the reason that that was feasible at all, aside from getting him on board with that, is that we had been very intentional about our finances early on in our relationship. And I, when we were dating, I was like, listen, here's the plan. (laughs) Like I am on a plan to not be in debt. So whatever debt you have, you're welcome to bring with you. I would love it if you ditch it beforehand, but if you do choose to bring it with you, it is public enemy number one in our (laughs) marriage. Like The plan is to get rid of it as soon as possible because it's not a blessing to us. Here's a book. Like I was like, we were early dating and I was like, this is my plan. Get on board or don't plan on being around. It was the worst possible way. to approach money in a relationship, but we were dating. So everything was like, great, right? He was like, yes, I would love to read this book about money. I don't think he's read a book since then. (laughs) And definitely not one that I've said, like, you should read this. Um, But he was motivated to apparently to keep me around. Um, So he was like, yep, I'm on board. And so we got married. And within the first three years that we were married, we paid off all of our debt, including our mortgage. Wow. And which was huge. It was like, it felt like it took forever. But now that we're like years down the road, it was a tiny window of time where we said we're prioritizing this over some other things that we would like and that we kind of value. But what we valued most was how much freedom we knew that that would afford us in the future. 
And I didn't know that seven years later, I would get incredibly burned out and need to quit my job. But I'm really glad that we did that before all of that went down. So we we had become debt-free, including our mortgage. We are consistent about maxing out our retirement every year. So I felt confident that even if I had to pause my contribution to retirement, Dan could continue his. And that when I got back to work, whenever that was, that we could just restart again. We have investments outside of retirement. So I said, hey, I wouldn't be contributing to retirement, but this is how much we have a wealth building fund, we call it. It's just invested in low turnover mutual funds outside of a tax sheltered account that we put money in for whenever we want. It's not based, you can't, you know, withdrawals are not based on IRA or 401k rules. So we could get it out whenever we want. And we continued to be able to save for college during that time. And those were the things that really mattered to us. Like, I didn't care if I didn't couldn't buy clothes for six months. I didn't care, you know, if we had to pull the kids out of daycare and radically change our lifestyle. But I wanted to make sure that me quitting wasn't going to jeopardize our financial future. That whatever we did in that time frame where I wasn't working was going to be a small blip on the long-term chart and not a massive step backward. We didn't have to pull things out of retirement. You know, we weren't dipping into savings. So, and I think that reassured Dan that it was a little bit of a crazy idea, but it wasn't so crazy that it was really going to hurt us. Yeah, that's great. I think that, like you said, you took many steps initially and that helped be able to give you that financial runway for when you really needed it. So you very likely had a good emergency fund set aside as well. And like you said, you ran the numbers and felt comfortable to make that decision and knew that ultimately there might be a little bit of a sacrifice for a short period of time, but long-term that you hoped for many gains in many parts of your life. And I think the thing that was really helpful to us is that during this season, which was really hard, I was exhausted. I was sick. I was beyond burned out. It wasn't the first time that we tried to talk about money inside of our marriage. This was something that we had conversations. We do this weekly money check-in, which now we just do a parent, Dan calls it the parent powwow, on Sunday night where we look at the calendar, who's driving who where, who has football, who has karate, who is going where, what's happening. And also, how are we doing budget-wise? I don't it's not a big production. It's I reconcile our what we spent from our checking account versus the budget. And I say we're on track or oops, we spent all the restaurant budget and it's one week into the month. So we either don't go out to eat for the rest of the month or we need to adjust the restaurant budget up and something else down. And so we make small adjustments along the way. So we had a lot of big conversations early in our relationship about money. We had a lot of maintenance conversations that happened weekly and monthly throughout our marriage so that when we were in crisis, and I do feel like when one of you is so burned out, they're about to walk into work and resign with no plan. Like that is a crisis. Like that's a personal crisis. That's a professional crisis. And it has the potential to be a financial crisis if you're not careful about the way that you go around it. We were in crisis and we had the verbiage to talk to each other. We trusted each other. We had our hands around the numbers. We knew where we were at. And it wasn't as scary as it could have been if we didn't know what we had in investments, if we didn't know that we were out of debt. All of those things, the conversations were still stressful. 
but it was a lower level. It didn't feel like it was an emergency. And I was like, listen, I'm quitting and I don't care. Like it yeah. was like, I, I need to do this. How can we do this in a way that works for us and doesn't hurt us, but saves me? Because those things, I was like, listen, if it's me or the job, I choose me, right? Yeah. That's what mattered in that season. And the other thing that was really key, and I think in this world where our mom and dad used to say like keeping up with the Joneses and the Joneses were this family at the end of the cul-de-sac with really nice cars and one was a lawyer and one was a doctor. We live in a world now where on Instagram or TikTok and all in our pocket, we are carrying with us the ability to compare ourselves to the Joneses rich uncle all over the world. All of these people <laughs> yeah. who are traveling and doing, and they're making a million dollars with a YouTube channel. And you're watching them and you're like, this is incredible. Like all of these people, do they not work? Like, do they not generate dirty dishes? Like, do they just, they never wear the same outfit twice. So they must not have laundry. Like you just have this perception of other people and the Joneses now live in your pocket. Like they are so close the barrier to be able to compare yourself to them is so low that it is incredibly easy to get stuck in this mindset that if you had more nicer things or better cars or different, that you would be happy. And when that is how you're living your life, your living expenses creep up. It doesn't matter how intentional you are. If you are spending your time comparing yourself to other people, you will want a nicer car. You will want a different pair of jeans. You will need that workout suit that the person on Instagram you follow, because that's the reason she's working out is obviously because <laughs> of what she's wearing, right? Totally. It's not her motivate. You know, it's not her dedication <laughs> to her health. So we have tried to be very intentional about keeping our living expenses as low as possible while still enjoying ourselves. There's room in our budget for travel. There's room for our kids to do way more sports than they need to be doing for sure. But that was a huge blessing that we didn't feel like me leaving my job was going to be like, we can't eat out. We're going to be on beans and rice. Like this is like, it was going to be tighter than it is now. And that was okay. And we were willing to accept that. But I think a lot of this comes down to what you value. So personally, I would rather have $200,000 in an investment and be driving a car with 200,000 miles on it than have a brand new car and zero in an investment account. Yep. <laughs> that's what we value. So that's what I value. Like if you value new cars, live your life in a way that new cars aren't going to jeopardize your ability to prosper financially. We enjoy the freedom and the peace that comes from not stressing about money more than we enjoy that new car smell. Exactly. Yep. I definitely used to care about how my car looked. And then when I learned about financial independence, I'm like, I am totally fine driving this paid off car in cash with 200,000 miles on it when I am yep. able to invest for my future. So I love that. And then with talking about burnout, if there are some PA listeners or perhaps other listeners out there that are experiencing burnout right now in their life, what are some actionable tips that you would have for them to help them in that phase? So I think a lot of people say like self-care and build boundaries and do things which are very important if you're in a season of burnout. What I have found is that if you're walking through burnout, if you are drowning in too much work, 
not enough administrative support, if you're being asked to do more and more and more and other duties as assigned are just cropping up here, there, and everywhere, you're drowning. And when you're drowning, it's not time to learn how to swim. Yep. It's time to grab a life preserver. It's time to yell for help. It's time to say to the people around you, I can't keep doing this. I need immediately to change my schedule. I need immediately for my template to have charting time. I need immediately to build some boundaries where you're not emailing me at home, where patients don't have as much access to me. Like it's an emergency. I am drowning. I need this now. You have to have the right meetings and be assertive in those meetings and advocate for yourself and the other people on your team that to make sure that you are safe, that you're seeing a safe number of patients, that you're able to really take good care of those people. And then later, once you're not drowning anymore, you can build sturdy, enforceable boundaries. You can create habits of self-care. You can help change the system or the organization where you're working so this isn't the default and everyone doesn't feel the way that you feel. But if you're in the depths of burnout and you're drowning, like when you're drowning, if you don't ask for help, you go under. Like So this is the time to ask for help. And it's really not an option because if you don't, no one is walking around caring about you as much as you are. So if you need to be your own advocate or if you can look left or right and say to a trusted colleague or your supervising physician and say, hey, I need you to champion me in this because I can't keep going in this way and I like working here and I want to stay, but I can't stay if things don't change. I think we don't have those frank conversations enough. Or I think we say, I'm drowning, but I think everyone else is drowning. So it just seems like that's the way that we do it around here. And so I'm just going to say nothing because I don't want to make waves because I'm new or I don't want them to judge me because I'm the one provider out of 10 who raised my hand and said, this isn't working for me. The way that we're taking care of patients isn't working for me. And can you raise your hand and respectfully say, I think we need to come up with a win-win. What works for the practice, bottom line, what works for the patients to make sure they have good care, and what works for you. And those things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. You can be a productive PA who's taking care of a lot of patients, who's generating a lot of revenue for the practice, and be healthy and have good boundaries and not live on the brink of burnout all the time. Yeah, exactly. If you don't advocate for yourself, no one can read your mind. And so that's really important that you do speak up for yourself. But also, unfortunately, it seems like especially nowadays in medicine, especially people higher up in organizations don't always value you as an individual provider. They are more so focused on the bigger picture and the dollars, and they don't necessarily always care about you because unfortunately, you can be replaceable in their eyes. And that's such a horrible feeling to feel that way, but it is really true that you need to try to find a supportive environment to work in. And if you don't feel like it's supportive to try to move on and find a place that would better suit you. Yeah. And I think that you know, deep down, if it's salvageable or not, you know, if it's worth putting in the effort to try and fix things, or if you have tried and tried and tried, and the answer was no, and no, and then heck no. I mean, then you're probably not going to get anywhere. And that's the time where you say, hey, I can't fix this ship. I'm going to go find a different one. And hopefully you can come to that decision soon enough that you can make 
a smooth transition and give good notice and leave on good terms and find a place where their culture and their values fit with your culture and your values and with your season of life. Exactly. And then Tracy, do you mind sharing when you learned about the concept of financial independence? How long ago was that? How did you learn about it back in the day? And then what parts of financial independence drew you to the community? So my parents were doing the Dave Ramsey way before it was the Dave Ramsey way. Sure. And when I was little, I my dad used to listen to Dave Ramsey on the actual radio, like before podcasts were a thing, before you could download it to your iPod and like pre-record, listen to episodes on a road trip. We listened to it on the local AM radio (laughs) in our town, (laughs) driving around in my dad's little blue truck. And my dad, so we listened a ton. And my dad would like, someone would call in and say, what's the difference between a Roth IRA and a regular IRA? And my dad would turn the volume down and say, girls, quick, who knows the difference between a Roth IRA and a regular IRA? Like, I'm like, I love that. So nerdy. Like, and we loved it. We were like, pick me, pick me. I know. Like, I know the difference. Um, And my dad, like we had our first jobs. I was working at a gas station convenience store as a 15-year-old kid who couldn't even drive herself to work. And all that I earned that year, my dad put in a Roth IRA for me. Love it. And I had no idea what that meant, really. I mean, so I went down to the bank with him and, and he said, this is what you earned this summer. I'm going to let you keep that, but I'm going to fund this Roth IRA for you. And this is why this matters. And this is a calculator of compound interest. And this is why this money is going to become more dollars than any other dollars you'll ever make in your life, because these dollars will be working harder for longer. And the dollars that these dollars earn will work harder for longer. And even before that, my dad had a matching program (laughs) where if we babysat and we made $100, if we put that $100 in the bank, and left it there for a full 12 months, he would match it. Nice. So he was building this muscle of saving, of like, you earned this, and if you save it, it will grow. Is that how investing works? Yes, but no, right? You don't get 100% return 12 months later. But the theory was there. He was saying, hey, you worked hard for this money. I know you'd rather buy a sweater at American Eagle, but if you save it, it will grow. And so now that I'm an adult, I can see that my parents, they never, ever borrowed any money for anything. So they never borrowed for a car. They built a house with cash and they finished half of it because they ran out of money or they didn't, they knew that was going to happen. And they said, we're going to get the first floor livable. And later, years later, they saved up to finish the basement. Years later, they paved the driveway. We had a dirt driveway for years. We didn't know any different. It was just a driveway. It didn't matter to us. And we had this great life. They paid cash for everything. And my mom retired when she was 50. Wow. That's awesome. I was 18. I was graduating from high school. I'm their youngest kid. So I think my mom retired on Friday and my high school graduation was Saturday. (laughs) And it was just awesome. And she was retiring and she's like, everyone at work is like, how? how? And she would say, we never had a mortgage payment. And they would like start doing calculations in their mind. And she would say, we never had a car payment. We never had a credit card payment. We never paid interest on anything at all. 
And they would be like, oh, okay. And so I got to a front row seat to my parents being frugal and being careful, but still living a life that was great and being responsible and saving for us to go to college so that I could become a PA, so that my sister could become a pharmacist, so that she could start a business. All of these things that set us up for success and helped to start build this generational wealth from one generation to another. And that my mom at 50 walked out of the mill where she was a chemical engineer and never had to go back. Wow. And so I had a front row seat to this freedom and the independence that it afforded them. And since then, they've had a motorhome, they've had a sailboat, they've traveled all over the country. They are really mobile to come and see us because we live away from them. And so I knew how valuable money was at building that independence. So for me, this financial independence movement is not about the money. It's about that freedom. It's about that independence. It's about not being beholden to a job or a network or a paycheck or even a career if they are no longer serving you. And so when my job threatened my health and my sanity and my relationships, it was a hard decision to make, but I would do it again in a heartbeat if I ended up in the same situation. And although at that time we weren't like, oh, I never need to work again, no big deal, just quit, we were free enough. We had created enough margin in our lives so that when we were in a crisis and when it came down to deciding save me or save the job, I was able to choose me. So I think sometimes this financial independence retire early movement is like, oh, way down the road, right? Way down the road, I'll be able to retire early, way down the road. But really what you want is to be as financially independent as soon as you can so you can choose what's best for you whenever you need to. That's really the goal is to be as independent as you can and not dependent on those other variables because sometimes things happen that are beyond your control and you want to be prepared for those. Exactly. I think that it's great to have the goal of financial independence and ultimately that's what people need to reach to be able to retire comfortably at any age. But once you have those systems in place and those practices in place, those habits where you are saving and investing, it frees up so many choices and options on the way to financial independence, like being able to cut back at work if you're able to, switch specialties, take a sabbatical if you want, and all sorts of options. Yeah. And I absolutely love that about your dad teaching you those habits when you're a teenager and also setting up a custodial Roth IRA. I think that's so wonderful. Yeah. Early brainwashing. If you have young kids, <laughs> teach them early. <laughs> Perfect. That's awesome. That was, yep. That was his way. Are you guys doing that for your kids with custodial Roth IRAs or other types of investment accounts for them? So we are focusing currently on college savings because we have two kids that are teenagers and then three that are under seven. So we have a big age gap in our kids. So we're currently writing checks for college tuition. Um, and I hope that in the next couple of years, we can help the kids get a, get a boost, our big kids, when they're working um, to be able to really start them off in a good, in a good way, investing-wise. Nice. That's awesome. Like you said, building generational wealth and being able to bless your kids from the habits and choices that your parents were able to teach and show you. Yeah, it's a cool thing. And then, Tracy, you host a awesome podcast called Fulfilled as a Mom. So I love having other PA podcasters on here. I think it's such a fun community. 
Do you mind sharing what prompted you to start your podcast as well as your business? And then why do you think that your message that you talk about is so important? My podcast and my coaching business to help other moms and other PAs in search of peace and freedom was born from all of these questions that everyone was asking me when I just out of the blue to a lot of people uh, resigned. So the very month that I gave notice was the month that I published my first podcast episode. Uh, That was two years ago now. And what I really wanted to do was I wanted to serve my listeners with the resources that I was starving for when I was walking through burnout. My goal is to help as many moms as possible to manage their money so it's not a stressor, their time so that it feels like they have an abundance of it, and their energy so at when they lay down at night, they're feeling tired, but not beyond exhausted, like a good fulfilled kind of tired, and that each day they wake up feeling energetic and ready to take on the day. And I think so few moms are able to do that because we're pouring out into work and our kids and our spouse and the PTA and all of these things that we're doing. So really for me, you know, hindsight's 2020 and I am now well out the other side of my burnout, but I really am glad that my burnout led me to building this platform and to be able to pour into the lives of other PA moms and to help them on their journey to freedom and to fulfillment. And it was really hard to walk through it, but it ended up being a blessing in disguise because it inspired me to say, hey, you know, I was really blessed to be in a situation where because of my parents and because of the way that they taught me and because of whom I married and because we were diligent about money. I mean, there was a lot of becauses that led to the point where I was able to get out of that situation. And that's not true for a lot of people. I understand that my story is one of privilege and that having the ability to leave your job is not something that a lot of people can say, but I really would love it. If more people could, if more people understood something might be coming down the road that might jeopardize your ability to earn income. And so you should save for that rainy day and you need disability insurance. And like these things are really important and they seem kind of abstract until they happen to you or your neighbor or your sister or your cousin or your sister's friend. And these things are happening. We don't want to say like, oh, doomsday, everything. But like bad things happen in life. And the more prepared you are, the better you're able to keep walking on a path that works for you when those twists and turns come up. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's great. Like you said, expect the best and hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. You never know what's going to happen. Unfortunately, Bad things happen to good people all the time. And no one cares about your finances more than you do. So it's really important that ideally both of you in a relationship, but if your spouse isn't financially inclined, definitely take the lead because if you became a PA, you can definitely learn finances. So, Oh, yes, absolutely. This is not the Krebs cycle or how the kidney works. This is much easier (laughs) than both of those things. Totally. Yeah. You're making me have some flashbacks. Thank you for that, Tracy. Oh, my gosh. Like the tubules, like the concentration gradient. Man, when we learned how the kidney worked, I was like, if I didn't believe in God before this, I definitely do now because there is no way this is some strange coincidence. It's rather impressive. Yes. Amen for that. Totally. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Tracy. It was a ton of fun. 
Do you mind sharing how the listeners can find you and connect with you if they have some questions or want to get in touch with you? Absolutely. So I like to hang out on Instagram. I'm at Mrs. Tracy Bingaman. If you are interested in learning more about becoming financially independent, I have put together a little guide. It is five key pieces to that puzzle of financial independence. You can get them for free at tracybingaman.com slash money. As you said, my show is fulfilled as a mom. And since I know that your listeners love podcasts, I would love it if they would head on over and check it out. The more, the merrier. I would love to pour into you and speak into your journey and give you just a tidbit. The episodes vary in length. Some of them are short enough to listen to between daycare drop-off and work. Some of them are a little bit longer. You want to tune into those after bedtime, but there is something for everyone. And I would really, you know, I really appreciate you checking it out. And thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. Yeah, it was a ton of fun. Thanks again. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope that you decide to continue to join me along this journey of becoming a PA the FI way. Please take a moment to press the subscribe button on the platform that you are listening to this on, but more importantly, consider sharing with another current or future PA that could benefit from the information that we reviewed in this episode. Take care and have a great rest of your day. Until next time.